Thank you so much. It is a tremendous joy to be with you this morning. I get to share another installment in this series, Cultivate, where we're talking about how the Beatitudes of Jesus give us an outline or a roadmap for how to cultivate a deeper relationship with God. So Megan and I and our three children have been part of the Northland family for a couple of years now, and we've appreciated so much the wide diversity of ministry opportunities that happen here. And one of those that we benefit from as a family every week is the children's ministry. And one thing that I just wanted to acknowledge this morning is that you heard how much we've moved. We've been all over the place from Houston to Boston and cities in between and churches of a couple hundred people to churches of 10,000 people. And in all those places we've been, Northland's children's ministry is the most effective we've ever encountered for the discipling of kids. So, absolutely. So we're so thankful for that. One of my mentors has referred to the 414 window of evangelism. And what he means by that is that most people have made their lifelong faith decisions by the age of 14. And so it's every bit as strategic and important for the kingdom of God what's happening in either wing of this property as what's happening in the sanctuary, the discipling and investment in children that's being made, teaching them scripture, teaching them about the love of God. And we're so grateful for that. Uh, One of the other activities that happens here at Northland is the Daddy-Daughter Dance. It was a couple months ago. Many of you remember that. It's this great event, and it was my first year to go this time. And so I got to go with my three-year-old daughter, Anna. And that was a treat, and I was getting excited for the event. And if you were a dad who went, you got this email from Pastor Vernon that really raised the stakes and said, hey, this is a big deal, and how you treat your daughter, treat her really well, make this a special night, because that's going to reflect God's love to her and show her how she's valuable, how much worth she has, so make this a great night for your little girl. And so I was excited to do that, and I was pumped up about it, and I said, hey, Anna, what do you want me to wear to the daddy-daughter dance? You know, I've got fancy clothes, you see me go travel and go to work, what do you want me to wear? And with the full confidence and assurance of a three-year-old, she looked at me and said, Spider-Man. <laughs> and I'm like, did I, did I hear you right? So, um, Spider-Man, well, Anna, you know, your favorite color is purple. And, and as I'm trying to do this, my wife Megan's laughing over to the side, and I'm like, no, but purple, I've got a purple shirt, I could wear that. Wouldn't that be so special if I wore your favorite color? And she just said, no, I want you to be Spider-Man. And so then Megan is on Amazon.com right away, prime shipping. She's making this dream a reality. And so I was stuck at that point. And so I wanted to just share a picture of of what we looked like for the daddy-daughter dance. That was us. And, uh, And so there we were. I was hoping we could just come in and leave and no one would notice. But occasionally I get greeted as, hey, Spider Man, how you doing? So I thought there's no hiding it now, so I might as well just share the picture with everybody. So today, we're talking about the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. But before we dive into that, I want to just set the stage a little bit in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what's happening here? And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Matt give some of this intro. I want to build on that and then move into this second beatitude. But Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience when he wrote his gospel, and he gives us this image of Jesus going up on the mountain to teach. And if you were a Jewish reader of the gospel, you would immediately think of one thing, and that thing would be Moses. Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he received God's law, and then he brought it to the people. But the key difference in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus goes up on the mountain, and then he sits down and teaches out of his own authority. 
And he does something remarkable in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You can see this if you go read it. He says, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I say unto you. And so he was doing something incredible, which is making the claim that he had the authority to add to the Old Testament law that Moses had given the people. He was claiming to be God. And so this is the assertion of authority that Jesus makes. Now, Matthew also opens chapter 5 by saying, Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach them. And then it goes right into the Beatitudes. And it seems like wasted ink, right? Why would you say that he opened his mouth and began to teach them? Isn't that obvious? You have to open your mouth if you're going to teach. And I think the reason that it's there is because it points to this biblical tradition of the spoken word of God having creative power. You look all the way back to Genesis, it says, and God said, let there be light, and that's how creation happened. And we also look in John's gospel, the prelude to the gospel of John, he opens with this same idea. So I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 4, which points to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, that means through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so we have this idea that here's Jesus. He's God himself, and he's on the mountain, and the same voice that spoke the cosmos into existence is about to teach. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous and compact set of teachings that we have recorded in Scripture. So we've got the most powerful teacher in the history of the world, Jesus himself, giving his most famous and impactful sermon. And then what are the Beatitudes? That's how he opens this sermon. And they form sort of a cliff notes or an executive summary of the teachings of Jesus. It's the operating system for the kingdom of God. So it really raises the stakes. These eight little verses that can seem a little mysterious have great power and they're worth their weight in gold. And so that's why I'm so excited about this series and excited to get to add the second Beatitude for us. So the Beatitudes, as Pastor Matt shared with us last week, are not eight isolated sayings. They're actually meant to be a progression or an ascension as we mature as followers of Jesus and get closer to the image of Christ in our lives and in our walk. And the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who is called the Prince of Preachers, he said that these are how Jesus answers the question, who are the saved? In other words, what does it look like for someone to actually follow Jesus? How does their life begin to change And what are the authenticating marks that you would see in their life? And Spurgeon also called these Beatitudes a ladder of light to indicate their progression. And so that's why we have this ladder here with us this morning to give us an image of this ladder of light. And there's one word on each rung, which is my best stab, or two words on this one, but my best stab at giving us an image of each of the Beatitudes and the virtue that they represent. So what's at the top? What did Jesus put as the capstone? We actually see the word persecution up there. And that word persecution's at the top of the ladder. By the way, you don't get to the top of the ladder immediately. Any of us, we've all climbed ladders and you start on the first rung. And this happened to me in real life about two weeks ago. I went and I was gonna put up a rope swing for our kids in our backyard. And I was, I'm not much of a handyman, I don't do much around the house, but I was excited to take this one on. And so I got out the ladder, it was heavy, I carried it across the backyard, put it in full extension mode, got it set up on the tree, and I was feeling pretty good about myself, like this is, this is going to be great. And Megan came to spot me, and I started to climb that ladder, again feeling great, and I got about halfway up, about 10 feet off the ground, and then I just looked down, shouldn't have done that, and I just stopped. 
And Megan's down there and she goes, hey, you doing okay? And I'm just frozen and I'm going, that's a 10 foot drop if I fall. And that's about 10 feet further up to the branch there. I don't like where I am right now. And in that feeling of nervousness, of course, if you know the ladder is safe, you know that you're in good hands, got a good spotter, all you can do is just keep climbing. And you climb one rung at a time. And I think that's the image that I, I would love for us to have as we think about these Beatitudes. And again, on top of the list, Jesus put persecution. Why is that there? I think he wanted us to know, especially relevant for us in America today, in this American dream culture, that if you follow Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean health, wealth, and prosperity and happiness every day of your life. And in fact, sometimes pursuing Jesus leads to difficulties. Sometimes it comes with persecution, and Jesus said we'll be blessed. We accumulate our rewards in heaven when, when that happens to us. But don't be discouraged if it does. But the other seven beatitudes that come below persecution are all virtues of the heart that are cultivated in the garden of our hearts as we walk with Christ. And the top one is reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so the, the capstone of the Christian life is to see someone who everywhere they go, people are restored in relationship to one another. And people are restored and brought closer in their relationship to God. There's reconciliation everywhere a mature Christian goes. Paul writes that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And that's an awesome picture. We all want to be that. But that's the seventh rung. And so I can't just jump up there unless I were to hurt myself. And you guys would laugh. And I don't want that to happen. Um, so where do we start? Well, we can't bring reconciliation according to the Beatitudes unless we're pure in heart. But how do we get a pure heart? Well, according to the roadmap of the Beatitudes, it starts with generosity. This is blessed are the merciful. So God doesn't purify our hearts because we have really, really good quiet times for 30 minutes every morning and we never miss one. That's a good thing to do, but it's actually through works of mercy, through generosity to the world that God actively purifies our hearts and makes us more like him. But it's really hard to become generous when there's a pull of selfish desires. And so we need a spiritual hunger to help us get there. That spiritual hunger only grows out of a, blessed are the meek, only grows out of a gentle and meek posture, which will be next week's sermon before God. And that meekness or gentleness comes from repentance, which we're going to talk about for the rest of today. And just as Pastor Matt taught us last week, the only way that we can truly repent properly is to come to God lowly with humility. And unless we're humble before God, we can't repent. So the top of the ladder is beautiful. I want to be someone who brings reconciliation, who walks in purity with generosity and spiritual hunger, but I can't get there according to Jesus unless I come with humility and even a brokenness over my sin and repentance. So that brings us to this beatitude for this week, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, there's a surface-level reading of this verse, which is where I began as I was looking at it and thinking about this sermon. And then I started reading commentaries, and some of them said really helpful things like this. You could accurately translate the Greek here as, happy are the unhappy. I'm like, oh, that clears it up for me. Um, those words are opposites. Happy are the unhappy. How does, what does that mean? It doesn't make sense. Jesus is giving us a paradox here, and he wants us to think about it. And, and dig a little bit deeper and think about it in the context of a progression to get the meaning of this. I think the great English pastor John Stott gives us a helpful quote to analyze what this verse is all about. He wrote, 
Those Jesus promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. And so this verse, Matthew 5, verse 4, is not a verse to help sad people become happy again. It's a verse to help broken people find healing. And it's a verse that was placed there to help us remember to repent and to bring our sin before God. So from this point forward, just by the nature of the verse we're looking at, we're going to talk about repentance. This is, you know, it's designed to be a challenging sermon. It's a challenging verse. We want to honor God's word in that way. And so if you don't like this message, if you hear things that make you upset, um, I'd love to even hear about that. There was this confusing interaction, and you heard something about John Cortinas. But if you don't like the sermon, just remember, my name's Vernon, and I work here. And, and Vernon at NorthlandChurch.net, just tell me what you think if you don't like it. Uh, and that would be great. That would be great. And so uh, the challenge this verse gives to you and the challenge this verse gives to me is this. How do we approach Jesus? Do we approach him sort of as a life coach? Someone who can take us to the next level and help us achieve more, get better relationships, figure out our finances. Jesus is going to help me get all my, my things straightened out. I'm doing pretty good, but I could use a boost. Or do we come to Jesus broken over the depravity that we see in our own hearts, mourning the sin that's in us and viewing him as the only way forward, someone that we're desperate for? And we have this great picture of this in Luke chapter 7, in Luke's gospel, his account of the life of Jesus. We read about a Pharisee, a religious leader named Simon. And Simon wanted to have a dinner party and he wanted to have Jesus over because he heard he was coming into town. And you can imagine in the first century, a dinner party in the neighborhood is probably a pretty big deal. And so there's probably neighbors coming over. Simon's a respected leader in town. So you've got Jesus coming to his house, people filling up the house, and it's this exciting evening. And so what are they doing? Well, they've had dinner, they're reclining at the table, probably having a glass of wine, talking about the Old Testament law, the Torah, talking about the kingdom of God, maybe joking about local politics. It's this pleasant environment, like many of us have found ourselves in so many times, but then it gets interrupted. And so Luke 7, 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and then look what she did. Picture yourself at this dinner party. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So the thing I want to notice about this is it's profoundly awkward. Um, I think we've been in social situations probably in our life where, you know, it's adult interactions, everything's calm and pleasant. And then somebody's suddenly screaming, or somebody's really angry, or somebody, somebody's wailing in sorrow. And if you're just a bystander there, you kind of start to go, I don't know what to do with this. I'm, I, think I'm gonna, I think I'm just going to leave. And if you're a guest at Simon's house, you're probably going out the front door. But Simon was on the hook. He's the host. This is his house. And you can imagine how awkward he felt. And he's like, what is this woman doing? Not only that, but it says she was a woman of a bad reputation. So why is she in my house? I'm a religious leader. This is a respectable gathering, and she, she's ruining it. And she spilled this perfume on my floor, and my house is now fumigated with this stuff. And what is going on here? And the text basically says that Simon wished Jesus would know what kind of a low-life woman she was so he could shoo her away, and they could get on with the evening. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. And in fact, it says he turned to Simon and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he launches into one of his great stories, one of Jesus' great stories, which I'll summarize for us, which is there's a money lender and two men owe money. And, and one owes a lot, one owes a little, and both get forgiven their debts. And Jesus asks Simon, hey, who do you think loved the man more? And Simon says, I guess the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, yeah, you got it correct. And then he says, you know, I came into your house and you didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me oil for my head. You haven't treated me that respectfully. But look at the outpouring of love from this woman. She's weeping at my feet. And she's washing them with her tears and with her hair. And look at the love that she's poured out. And then he does something remarkable. He turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And so that is this beatitude at work. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So Simon came to Jesus kind of as the life coach, as the interesting teacher, as someone to have a conversation with, pick up a few pointers and move on with my day. But the woman came to Jesus in broken sorrow, seeing the depravity inside of herself and knowing that he was her only hope. And Jesus responded favorably to who? To the woman. And so I think that's the question for us, is will we be today like that woman? You know, it's, um, there's a song out by the artist Pink, who's known for being a great moral philosopher. And uh, the song has a really catchy line that says, we're not broken, just bent, and we can learn to love again. And you probably maybe heard that song in the mall or on the radio. It's, it's really catchy. It'll be in your head the rest of the day if you know the song. But um, it's actually wrong, according to this passage. That's kind of the Pharisee's attitude. You know, I'm not broken. I'm just, I can figure stuff out. And maybe Jesus can help me get straightened up a little bit. But the woman says, no, I'm not bent. I'm broken. And there is no hope that I see inside of myself. I've got to be rescued from without. Someone is going to have to help me out if this is going to work for me. And so we're going to apply this today and have an opportunity to remember to repent, to repent this morning in three ways. I'd like to look at the areas of anger and the area of money and the area of sex. And these are three common areas of temptation and struggle and sin is what I've been told. Amazingly, I've never sinned in any of these three areas, but I know most of you probably have. And so we're going to focus on those. Uh, but we all have brokenness that manifests itself in these areas of our life. So first up is anger. Proverbs 14:29 says this. A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. And so I want you to think about your relationships and, and not actually those that are your most casual, not those that are like, you know, coworkers or in the checkout line, because most of us are probably pretty pleasant people in that setting. But I want you to picture yourself at the end of a long day where you're kind of at the end of your emotional rope. And those you're very closest to, maybe your family, very close friends, need something and you're not in the best place to be asked for it. And the question is, are you gracious and gentle then, or can you get a little bit quick-tempered? And to look at my own life as I prepared this sermon, God has deeply convicted me of this because I can get to the end of a day and I work, you know, nine, ten hours, come home. My wife Megan has made dinner and she's been caring for our kids all day and we get the kids to bed and I'm just wiped out and I go, I, I need to knock out ten or twenty emails and then I'm going to be ready to go to sleep. And so I sit down and I start doing that. And then Megan, who runs our household, comes to me and says, hey, can we talk about two or three decisions that we need to make? And you can guess what happens. There's a divergence between what I say and what my body language communicates. What I say is, sure, let's talk about it. But something in the way, I, I, this is invisible to me, but she can see it. And something in 
my body, I, you know, I sigh or I say it a certain way and somehow I've communicated, I don't really want to talk to you right now. I've got some stuff that's more important. And this is like a common relational thing and so it can be kind of funny to think about, but actually it's really ugly. And deep inside my heart, it's really ugly that I would treat my wife that way. My wife, who I'm supposed to love as Christ loves the church, who's the most important relationship that I have on this earth, and yet I'm, I'm being disrespectful because of some emails that I could do the next morning. And so that is not the gentleness of God. Look at the latter, right after repentance is blessed are the meek, which some translations render blessed are the gentle. And so there's an opportunity to think this morning, is that me? Have I engaged in being a little bit rough, a little bit quick-tempered with those who I'm closest with, and is that something I can repent of today? So that's where we're going to start. We're going to get one level deeper, a little bit more personal, and talk about money. And you heard just the tip of the iceberg of my story when I was interacting with Pastor Vernon just now, but God convicted me. You know, I was kind of a poster child for how to do money the right way, especially in American evangelical circles. I was making a lot of money, saving half my income. We were tithing 10%. Everything's going great. No debt, debt-free. So put me in any financial stewardship class and I'd pass with flying colors externally. But I think what Jesus showed me is I was like where he calls out the Pharisees and says, you're a whitewashed tomb. Everything looks good on the outside, but you're rotting on the inside. And I had taken money and elevated it in my life. And I was getting significance and security and even comfort out of money in my life rather than getting those things from God. I had $300,000 saved up by age 25 and I was proud of that and I was on this path where I was, had an unhealthy relationship and God broke me of that. And now we give twice as much money away as we used to and we have joy in it. And we've engaged with God and we've come to learn that the fruit of an authentic walk with Christ is generosity. Again, that one's on the ladder too. Blessed are the merciful. And we hadn't really wrestled that to the ground in our walk. We have a great picture of this in scripture in the story of Zacchaeus. We all know elements of the story of Zacchaeus. And it's famous. And there's even a song about it. We could add a song to the worship set today. If we said, um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And we could sing that song together. But they left something out of the song. Zacchaeus climbed a tree. And we learned that Jesus goes to the house of sinners and that's great. Those are good lessons. But I think the reason Luke wrote it down in his gospel is to show us that the fruit of repentance and the fruit of an authentic relationship with Christ is financial generosity. Let's take a look at what Zacchaeus said after he encountered Jesus in his life. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus doesn't say, hold your horses, buddy. That's a little bit aggressive on the response to the gospel there. Jesus actually says, today salvation has come to this house, for the he too is a son of Abraham, a man who lives by faith. And some people have looked at this story and said, well, you know, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. It was all cheated money anyways. It was all dirty money. He just needed to pay it back to society. Uh, I disagree with that. If you want to take home math problem, go look at what fraction of his wealth could have been dirty money. If he was able to give half of it away outright and then pay back four times anything he had cheated, what's the maximum amount of, of illicit funds he could have had? It's only 12.5% of his money could have been cheated. And so he had a profession people didn't like very much as a tax collector, but he had earned an honest keep. And his response to the gospel 
was radical and open-handed financial generosity. I work for Generous Giving, and we're all about biblical generosity. And we just had our annual conference. So I was in Colorado with about 500 people in a, in a ballroom. And it was people who had come together for the sole purpose of engaging with the message of biblical generosity and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus who becomes open-handed and freely generous with my money and with the rest of my life. A great crowd of people, great event. And Pastor Brian Loritz out of California gave us an amazing keynote address. And he said two things that I wanted to share with you. One of them was, how do you know that heaven has made its way into you. You're generous. It's the number one thing you can see in the pattern of scripture. And then in a challenging way, as he was exegeting Matthew 25, preaching out of that passage on the sheep and the goats, which you can go read about, one of the most challenging passages of scripture, he said, if it's all for you about consume, 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 instead of generosity, Jesus would say, you don't have a firm theological leg to stand on to say that you've actually been saved. Because it's so hand-in-hand, the gospel and generosity. We receive the grace of God. It flows up in joy and overflows from us to the world. And so maybe there's an opportunity for you to say, like me, and like I've continued to say, money has gripped my heart in an inappropriate way, and I'm looking to money for satisfaction, but I want to look to God for that instead. That's the second area of potential repentance today. And the third is the area of sex, which I know everybody's excited to talk about. And you're going, wow, money and sex in the same sermon, they're definitely not inviting this guy back to come talk again. And you're probably right. And remember, if you don't like it, my name's Vernon, and you can come talk to me afterwards about that or send some emails about it. Uh, But what I'd say here, again, we all have brokenness, and there's this taboo around the area of sex, but it's a common area of sin and struggle, and that's my brokenness and your brokenness will manifest itself in that area of our lives. In the beginning, God put a naked man and a naked woman in a garden, gave them to each other in marriage, and called it very good. But from that time forward, as brokenness entered the world through sin, sexuality and sexual expression has been one of the ways that we have run away from God. You see idol worship all through the history of the nation of Israel, which went hand in glove with with sexual immorality. And then in the New Testament, very immoral, sexually immoral cultures that the Christian churches were taking root in. And and the great theologian N.T. Wright, one of the greatest thinkers of our generation, has written that the earliest Christian's DNA from the very start, from the very get-go, was to be financial generosity and sexual purity. Those were the hallmarks of the church. And it's not about moralism or living perfectly, because then I'd be out and we'd all be out. But it's about the work of the Spirit in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ in these two areas. See, our culture says that we should be open and free with our sex lives, but we should closely guard our money. But God in his wisdom says that we should be open and free with our money through generosity, but we should closely guard our sexual purity. So there's this inversion in God's wisdom in this area. And so specifically, I just want to ask this morning, maybe for you, is there an area sexually where you've stepped outside of God's design for your life and you know that that's been true and you need to come and bring that before the Lord. Maybe it's pornography and it's happened sometimes and you've told yourself, I'm not actually addicted. It's not that big of an issue. It's only every couple months, it's only every couple weeks or it's only when I'm traveling or this or that. And God would just say, would you bring it before me today and would you actually stare it in the face and mourn over it so that we can begin the healing process together? 
You know, this happened in the Bible to King David. He looked out his window and he saw a woman taking a bath. And there was probably some seduction involved in this situation with Bathsheba. It's not like people took baths under the king's window. I mean, this was not an innocent scenario. But he, he sees... And he's a man after God's own heart. He could have said, no, that's not right. I'm going to go the other way. But instead, he pursued that relationship. And the fruit of that adultery was terrible consequences for him and for his kingdom. But as a man after God's own heart, David was broken over this, and he mourned that sin. And the Bible, this is awesome, actually records his prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, it's a great psalm, and it's David's prayer. And maybe that could be your prayer as well. And so the beginning of that psalm, it opens up and David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then pay attention to the last line. I want it to be ours as a church today. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So David was calling it forth. He had kind of pushed it to the side until Nathan the prophet confronted him and then he mourned over it and he said, my sin is before me. And the opportunity we have today is an opportunity to repent, to come to God in humility and to engage with mourning over the brokenness that we see in our lives, like King David and like the woman who wept and let her tears fall on Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair in humility before the King of Kings. And so maybe for you, it it looks like anger or money or sex, or maybe it looks like something that's not one of those areas at all, but you just say, oh man, I know that I'm outside God's will for my life in this area, and I want to cultivate, I want to cultivate a deeper relationship with him, and in the roadmap that Jesus gave us on this ladder, repentance is part of how we do that. And so I want us to close out with a couple of opportunities to engage in that way, and the first is simply an opportunity to get to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may have never made that commitment before. You say, I've I've kind of stood on the outside of the Christian faith, but I want to make a commitment to Jesus because I want to get on this ladder. I'm willing to come to him in humility. I can do that because I know I'm broken. And I want to repent because I see where this heads and it leads to Jesus and that's worth it. And so if that is you this morning, I'd ask you to just put a hand in the air with me. Or maybe you're online and you say, you know, I, I, uh, you can't see me, but God can see me. I want to put my hand in the air, even though I'm watching online. And that could be you as well. And if that's you, if we could all bow our heads and, and just say a prayer that goes along with that commitment. Jesus, I believe that you offer me true life. I believe that you're the son of God and you came and you died for my sins and you were raised to new life and you've invited me to new life. So I give you my relationships, I give you my money and my my sexual life and every area of me, all my ambitions, I want to just make you the king of all of my life. And I invite you in and I receive your promise of forgiveness and comfort this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And many of us in this room prayed a prayer like that one yesterday or 60 years ago or 30 years ago or anything in between. But we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to engage in how we can cultivate that relationship with God by repenting of the sin that we find in ourselves. It's something Jesus invites us to, to mourn 
but then he gives us the promise of comfort. And he can turn to us like he turned to the woman, and we know he will, and he'll say, your sins are forgiven. And so the second opportunity is for the family of God, those who follow Jesus, to say, it may be it's money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's anger, maybe it's something else, but I want to repent of a sin that has been brought to mind in my life today. And if that's you, if you'd raise your hand with me, and my hand is up because I'm participating in this, because I need to mourn the brokenness that's in my heart before the Lord today. And so if that's you, if you join me in this prayer. Jesus, I have brokenness in me and I see it and I mourn it, Lord. I can't do this alone, but I thank you so much that you filled me with your Holy Spirit. And I thank you so much that as I weep at your feet and let my tears fall on you, that you promised to comfort me and you've forgiven me of my sins. I'm grateful for you, Jesus, and I'm grateful to know you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So thank you, church. We're going to move in to a time of communion that Pastor Vernon will lead in a couple of songs as we close out. But I want to leave you with one last thought, which is from A.W. Tozer, the great pastor and writer. And he wrote about this and he said, Did we not all at once live in the lusts of our flesh? But we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. And all this through the tender mercy of our God. So let's praise him for his comfort as we enter into a time of communion. Thank you.